Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. It's wonderful to have you with us, watching us on RTL Play, listening to us on Today Radio or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you hear us. We're just delighted to have you as part of our growing international community. As always, a full house here with me in the studio, as you can see if you're watching on RTL Play. Sasha, wonderful to have you here as always. We're very thrilled to have you with us, Ambassador Diego Brasioli. It's great to have you here. We've got Professor Annalena Hugenauer, who is uh, helping me practice how to pronounce the U sound in German. <laughs> and with her student Bram Kurz from the University of Luxembourg. And we also have Lex Schall, who is a public health professional. But as always, we're going to start with you, Sasha. We're going to have a little reflection of the week's news. No let up this week, as always. No, even though it is a, hol- a school holiday. So I think we were hoping maybe it'll go a bit quieter. But there's, there's always news, actually. Yes, there is always news. And we're going to start with something that's, um, it's been rumbling around for a few weeks now and they finally pressed the button, the US debt ceiling. Yes, so the Senate actually signed it last last night. So it really was an 11th hour deal. And um, I think not just America, but the whole world kind of goes, phew. <laughs> Um, because you're talking trillions of dollars. I mean, the US debt ceiling is over $31 trillion. Yep. And, uh, you know, there there was no consensus and the, there was a possibility it would be blocked in the House of Representatives to raise the debt ceiling. Um, you know, and if they hadn't come to an agreement, then I think there would be a, a lot of, there'd been a lot of concern on the world markets. Uh, interest rates would have gone high. So, higher. Yes, <laughs> well, yes hi- higher. You're quite right. Yeah. Um, so, I think President Biden in particular does a, a very big sigh of relief. Mm. Um, the only thing is that now, of course, there are quite a few things that he won't be able to enact because the Republican Party have asked for concessions. So some of the uh, tax uh, concessions he won't be able to introduce. However, next year is uh, election year in America and he won't have to go through this again next year now that they've come to a deal. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's good that the, this is out of the way now. But I mean, when you dig into the, the <laughs> This, the whole world of money, it's quite nebulous in some ways, you know, moving the debt ceiling, etc. But at least the markets are uh, steady-ish. Yes. Ish. Exactly assured. <laughs> and then, in fact, of course, the, the news this morning was r- rather overshadowed because poor President Biden had a tumble yesterday. Yes. And uh, immediately, you know, the cameras kind of go, oh, yeah, well, there's the debt. That's a bit boring. But he's, you know, he's fallen. I mean, he got up on his own yeah. and I don't think it is a sign of his age. But uh, immediately that's yeah. that's was where the stress was today. Yeah, I, I saw the stories as well. Moving to another serious story, the Ukraine war. I mean, it, it's still going on, of course, as we all know. And um, the Ukraine launched one of its biggest drone attacks on Moscow. So, yes, this is what is a, is a new development uh, this week. So there have been continued drone attacks on, on Kyiv um, all week. Um, but that the fact that there was a, a drone attack on Moscow, I mean, uh, the, there were no casualties. But, you know, um, it... it, it again, scales scales the war up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then they're very interestingly, I thought that the, yesterday there was this meeting in Moldova, which is this new EPC, this European Political Community uh, mm-hmm. meeting, uh, which is the EU countries plus uh, associated countries, some, sorry, countries like Moldova and Armenia and, and the UK. Um, and very significant that they met in Moldova, which is obviously an EU accession uh, candidate, as is Ukraine. And they met in a castle just across the border from Ukraine. So it really kind of 
showed so there was a sort of sense of solidarity mm. um you know president zelensky came yeah. uh, again last minute rather like the uh, g7 As meeting always, we discussed last week he just week. zooms in and out <laughs> um but uh, you know he is really pushing for this eu eu accession and for nato accession and um so it it, it was really interesting mm. and and i think quite a significant moment well i'm quite sure some people in the room have uh, very strong and learned opinions on on this yep. we might come to that in fact <laughs> Moving to the third story, we also have Lex in the room and uh, and he will have an opinion, I'm sure, on World No Tobacco Day, which was the 31st of May, was Wednesday. Yes, I, I, I thought of you when I saw that you were coming in today. I thought, oh, OK, there's, there's someone who's uh, more informed than me to talk about this story. But uh, yes, it, it's, it's every year. And uh, this year's motto was we need food, not tobacco. So to, to encourage uh, tobacco farmers to grow alternative crops. And obviously for us, the focus was in Luxembourg, which I'm sure Lex will discuss later. And, um, you know, because the number of smokers is still rising. It's really high. Especially among young people in the country. So this is extraordinary yeah. um, that despite, uh, you know, public health messages um, and, uh, you know, the, the number of uh, young people is rising and, you know, 37% of residents say they occasionally smoke between the age of 18 and 34. So I, again, I thought that was an incredibly high number. I think it's really high coming from a place where smoking is really frowned upon. I, I think in uh, even Ireland, yeah. I mean, shockingly, even in Ireland, you know, they had that overnight ban on smoking inside pubs and things and it just worked. It really well, worked. Presumably it might have something to do also with the price of cigarettes. And I know in Ireland they're about yes. 20 euros and here they've gone up 20 cents, which doesn't, I think we've, again, we've discussed we had that this. Last week and it doesn't, doesn't seem a massive rise. It does doesn't it? make uh, an impact on the on the pocket. Now, uh, now fourth story uh, this week, amazing research from Japan and Luxembourg uh, on Parkinson's disease. They've got a wonderful neurodegenerative uh, found, uh, department here looking into this. Uh, this is a major international yeah. breakthrough. And Great. I would also think very significant for the university here yes. that um, they've, they've made this um, research that they can detect Parkinson's through a simple blood test, um, that you can recognise the blood proteins in the test. And it seems so very s- simple, but I'm sure the research was not simple, but I thought that was a yeah, very interesting for, it's for Luxembourg. Wonderful. The work they're doing on it here in Luxembourg and of course in Japan in this case and the story came out in um, Nature, a nature journal so it's super top class science so really congratulations to to the years of work that must have gone into this I'm sure of it. Um, and then a, a completely different story we're going to go to space we're going to NASA and uh, they held their first public meeting on UFOs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently so many UFOs. Well, now they're called unidentified anomalous phenomena. Oh, they? UAPs, I didn't know they changed. Um, but, uh, get reported to NASA. And last year, I don't know if you remember, but the uh, US State of Defence kind of said that they wouldn't completely discard Yeah, I do remember evidence. that. Yeah. And so, so NASA have been called in um, to clarify the origin of these hundreds of mysterious object reports that they get. Um, and they said they can explain the majority, obviously, but there are a few that they cannot explain. So they've put 16 of their top scientists on it. And uh, they will hold a news briefing in the summer to, to let us know what they think, that the ones that they... They don't exactly know could be. I mean, they're, they're just, but they're not completely discarding the extraterrestrial. But it's a bit of a joke. Remind me, it's now UAOs, UAPs, UAPs, unidentified anomalous phenomena. 
Okay. Doesn't trip off the tongue like UFOs. No. It? <laughs> so I think that's why people still, people still talk still about use, UFOs. Yeah, I, I, Absolutely. I yeah. Now we're now going to turn to Brian Johnson, and I I've been following him for a while actually. So for those who don't know, but they probably do now because he's been all over the news. Brian Johnson is an American tech entrepreneur, uh, multimillionaire, and he spends millions, around about two million dollars a year, uh, really focusing on his companies to reverse aging. So I. I have a, a previous colleague actually back in the UK who's done a, a documentary with him and um, he is quite a, he's quite a phenomenon. Yes, I mean, I watched the, you know, for, for good research for today, I did end up watching a very long documentary last night and it's fascinating because, you know, I've just seen news reports, as you say, he's been on my radar for yeah. a while and you, you sort of think, how ridiculous, really. Is this what people are spending their money on, on sort of, you know, fear of death, you know, sort of staying young. You've seen the headlines that he's had his son's plasma injected, his teenage son's plasma injected into him, that he has these machines, you know, monitoring his every move, that he only eats brown sort of gloopy food <laughs> and all this to stay young. Um, but when you watch the documentary, he very much argues, doesn't it, that it is uh, for science. He really, he set up a couple of companies and he actually loves the work he's doing um, and he's really driven by it, uh, utterly fascinated by it. So for him, it's a joy. Um, and, and I think it is extremely interesting. And I know there's many, many companies out there looking at anti aging but not from a cream's point of view on your face but literally from your internal body point of view of course it links to smoking again because if you want to do something quickly that would be one thing to do stop smoking um but no it's utterly fascinating research. yes because we so often talk about you know like last week the, the about yoga and well-being and you know staying staying young uh with the lifestyle but of course he's taking this sort of one one step beyond <laughs> quite, a, has to be quite said, a few steps and, and millions beyond millions yeah. beyond but it has to be said that he comes across as a deeply weird person yes um, I mean you know he doesn't he doesn't look sort of you don't sort of think oh he's you know he's drunk from the fountain of youth I mean he looks like he's been injected with everything um, and 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 I have to say a slightly cynical side you do wonder whether it's not it seems very narcissistic anyway yeah well I I I'm looking at the science part of it and I think the science part of it is very interesting the shame is that it's only the multimillionaires who can afford to do this right now. But of course, there are a few things that can trickle out that some of us can follow if we're not working very hard. And yes, I mean, the research will come out. I mean, did you see his exercise regime? I mean, no, no it's normal person could, could do this. Yeah, could they? I, I have mean, seen spend it. the whole day. I mean, because there is no possibility of doing anything else in your life, then, is there? <laughs> not a lot of free time, no. Um, so let's move on from him to another way to, to live a lovely, happy life. Enjoy the amazing weather of Luxembourg. And we've had um, fantastic weather it and it's been. coincided with obviously the uh, lakes in Luxembourg open their, and their official holiday. swimming mm. yes, um, on the 1st of May and we have a new lake that you can swim in in Echternach uh, since uh, I think the beginning of the holidays. Yeah. Uh, so that's been very popular. All, all articles like where, where can you swim in Luxembourg and uh, also you know the, the open terraces in Luxembourg you know where can you eat out all these kind of articles have been very very popular on the site. 
and we are very lucky because we have got loads of terraces. You can have a drink outside. I mean, or the last week I was at the wine festival along the along oh, the Moselle. Yeah. Oh, they opened all their terraces, and it was like you know, you really was like you were on some fantastic holiday because everyone was just sitting out, looking relaxed. So I always feel that Luxembourg would be a different country if uh, the, the sun always played with us. <laughs> Wouldn't everywhere? Um, but yeah, actually, last weekend I was at Echessur, and it was a wonderful. Wonderful. Very busy. People with their barbecues there and everything. And it was just fantastic. Yeah. Really fantastic atmosphere. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, yes. really great. So we are super lucky here in Luxembourg. So, Sasha, as always, I know you're going to stay with us. Uh, jump in with That's any questions pleasure. you have for our fabulous guests. And uh, and uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks because I'm not here next week. So great. thank you as always, Sasha. See you. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, three guests who are going to talk about uh, the new diplomacy lab that's opened up at the University of Luxembourg. So first of all, I have the ambassador of Italy to Luxembourg, Diego Brasioli. Diego is a career diplomat, an amazing CV. Uh, Just to reduce it, currently serving here in Luxembourg's ambassador of Italy to Luxembourg, but previously served in Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, USA, in Los Angeles, no less, Romania, and uh, in the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So you've got a phenomenal CV and I can see why you are absolute gold to the lab at the university, which is set up by Professor Annelene Huguenar. I hope I've pronounced that as correctly as is possible. (laughs) Professor in Political Science at the University of Luxembourg and Director of the Master in European Governance. And we also have a student of that course, Bram Kurz. Yes, I'm, I'm looking at you wondering, have I pronounced your... It is uh, close enough. <laughs> well, welcome to you all. Great pleasure to have you all here. Now, I'm going to start with you, actually, Annalena, because I'd like you to tell us uh, the origins of this course and what the Diplomacy Lab is. Yeah, so the idea started about one and a half years ago now, actually um, two years ago, when um, our previous generation of students decided that they wanted to do a little bit more after COVID because, you know, COVID really shut down campus life and nothing happened. And so once uh, the COVID problem disappeared, they really wanted to become more active and they created a forum on European neighborhood policy. So the states immediately surrounding Europe and organized um, events on that. And that was really successful. But of course, a relatively narrow topic. And then when when our now um, first year students at the end of their first year, the new cohort came, they had the idea to basically uh, start their own project on a broader topic. And I think this is now the project that we want to keep going forward for future generations of students, the Diplomacy Lab. And why the word lab? Um, <laughs> we discussed this, actually, we discussed different names. I think the idea for the lab is that um, you can experiment a little bit, try out things, experiment, um, yeah, shape shape things yourselves. So I think it emphasizes even more the idea that the students should be proactive and should take charge of things. And just thinking about uh, the people you have on board, I know it's really from the top, Jean-Claude Juncker, and of course we have you, Ambassador, here present. You have got really brilliant people coming and giving courses. So you actually give a course, in fact. Oh, yes, indeed. Tell us about the course you you give. Well, it has been one of the most exciting experiences in my uh, professional life because uh, what I found incredible is the University of Luxembourg, which is very dynamic, uh, full of young, uh, motivated people. And um, in my class, uh, teaching diplomacy, the 
theoretical and practical aspects. Students were very much eager to know what a diploma does. I remember the first lesson we had with you guys, someone raised their hand and said, but is diplomacy still relevant? And that was at the height of the uh, Ukrainian crisis. So everybody thought, okay, this is uh, diplomacy is failing. Uh, so um, I had, um, we were about 25 students of 22 different nationalities, uh, different backgrounds. A few of them want to become career diplomats. They're interested about international jobs, but not necessarily diplomacy. So it was very challenging, very interesting and very, Um, very interesting for me. After 40 years of uh, foreign service, uh, uh, I'm still learning a lot from these uh, young researchers. So you have the reverse mentoring going on as well with Indeed. all of those nationalities. They're giving you a flavour of everything. I'm going to turn to you, Bram. Tell us about the experience for you in this course. Yeah, so the, the course was very, very interesting. Um, like, as the ambassador mentioned, there are a few that have interest in potentially becoming a career diplomat. I am uh-huh. one of those people, uh, even though the ambassador has sometimes tried to dissuade me <laughs> from embarking <laughs> on the path. Um, but yeah, it is very interesting. Um, and I think it's a very good opportunity to um, get the side from someone who has been in the field for so long um, in very interesting posts. Um, and the ambassador has also invited very interesting people to come as guest speakers during the course. So it was one of the most interesting experiences I've had at university so far. It's an incredible addition to what you must teach and a, a really different way of engaging the students, I imagine. Indeed. So I think there's an opportunity for the students to then pick the topics that they are really interested in and to basically shape what we discuss. So, for example, the next topic that is on the agenda is feminist foreign policy. Um, and we for, we at the moment don't have courses on women in politics, for example, or in, in um, so meaning both female politicians, but also women in their role in politics. So this is, for example, something that fills a gap where students can then um, come up with their own ideas on this. And of course, it I think it also motivates them more, being able to do something themselves. And even though they don't get any grades, they don't get any credit, but they are incredibly invested in this project. I also imagine it increases their ability to debate and increases their ability in another language. I assume it's through English or whatever the... English. English. So it increases their ability to speak in public. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, very much so. When we had the inauguration of the Diplomacy Lab a few weeks ago, Uh, the students actually presented the project and the publication that we made at the end of the course uh, very interesting about uh, global challenges in the post-globalized world so we were touching all possible subjects uh, from theory to practice and uh, they were able to speak in front of professor experts other students uh, so it's uh, also an applied course of uh, public speaking and As Bram said, you have lived a long life in many different countries. You are a career diplomat. Tell us what that means. Tell us a little bit more about your experiences, the good and the bad. Um, uh, Well, uh, some say that the bad thing about uh, being a diplomat are three aspects, alcohol, protocol and cholesterol, which means (laughs) the difficult life of going... uh, Well, you have a very good figure, so I don't (laughs) think it's affected you. Um, uh, It's challenging. It's challenging because um, uh, every three, four years you have to change completely your job, like many other jobs in the world. But you have another responsibility because you have to work for your government. So basically, you have the responsibility of your country behind you and you have to um, uh, send a message to the country, uh, to the host country or to the host organization about what your your government line is. And it's a big responsibility. And it's always very interesting to have this uh, relationship with other cultures and other people of other countries. So serving from the Far East to the Middle East, to Luxembourg, to the US, uh, you have to adapt also your way of thinking and your way of communicating.
Mm -hmm. And the other thing that you've pointed out there is the fact that you're the mouthpiece of your country. Mm -hmm. You're the representative of your country on the soil of another land. Mm -hmm. And therefore your own personal opinions have to be uh, underground, inside you. Do you find that hard sometimes, Mm -hmm. that you're not allowed to have your own personal opinion or at least spread it publicly? Um, Well, yes, you have a certain discipline on that. You have to be very careful. And uh, we discussed with the students, uh, for example, uh, we devoted one of the meetings uh, about uh, social media. Social media are an extremely powerful and very good uh, way of communicating and spreading the message, but you have to treat them in a professional and careful way. Otherwise, we see also from politicians uh, what kind of mistakes you can make. So we are actually encouraged to have uh, to engage in public diplomacy, uh, to uh, participate to TV and radio st- um, uh, today, like today. <laughs> and we're very pleased to do that. But you have to be very, very careful trying to avoid sensitive issues or to treat them in a professional way. And we're trained for that, of course. Yeah, so if I ask you something personal, you'll give me a very diplomatic answer. Don't expect a very no, interesting no. answer from a diplomat. <laughs> I do expect very interesting conversation from a diplomat, actually. Um, so, Annalena, tell us a little bit more about the masters here that you represent at the University of Luxembourg, because it's a very dynamic, uh, I know it's, it's a burgeoning uh, university here and uh, great research going on. Yes, yeah, so we are organising the Master in European Governance, so that is largely a political science master with some uh, history elements and law elements um, added to it, so um, interdisciplinary with a political science core. And the idea is to teach the students um, how the European institutions work, how European policies are made, how these policies function, and also how this impacts the member states. So the adaptation of national policies and national institutions to the European level. And there is a strong international dimension as well. So we have several courses on development and conflict and international relations and integration also in the regions of the world. I've been looking at your background and the number of papers you've produced and I'm particularly interested in the fact that um, you are participating in the ESRC-funded project Negotiating Brexit, EU Institutions, National Governments and the UK 2017 to 2019. That must be fascinating. Yes, so um, indeed, so we have the opportunity, of course, as researchers to look at different projects and then also to build this into teaching. And um, there was a a British, so funded by the British uh, um, Research Council, a project that looked at how the different member states negotiated Brexit and their preferences. Um, It it turned out to be a little bit more boring (laughs) than you might expect, because, of course, most EU member states had the same preferences. You know, it's the same uh, that, you know, Britain either has to respect all the rules of the internal market or really leave the European Union with a much reduced deal and so on. But um, it was still very interesting. And we had to present this also to the public. And I built a lot of these insights into my bachelor course, Introduction to European Politics, where I look at at the more controversial themes of European politics. And so there we have a session on the UK in Europe and Brexit, for example. Have you done that course, Bram? No, I've uh, my bachelor's I've done uh, in my home country, uh, uh-huh. so I've not had the chance to follow that. But I do follow other courses uh, by Professor Hoganauer in my master's now. And what brought you to think about coming to the University of Luxembourg? Yeah, that is a question I get uh, quite often, when I, uh, especially when I tell my Dutch friends uh, th- that I went here. Um, I think uh, really the multilingual and multicultural aspect of it uh, really spoke to me. Um, and... Like I am very interested in the French language, but uh, in France, the people are maybe too interested in the French language that if I want to do a political science course, it has to be in French. And well, I wanted to learn it. I was not on the level yet to write academic papers in French. So if I came here, I could do a program in English, but still be in a uh, situation where I could use French, where I could learn French, where there's a lot of native French speakers and also just 
with a lot of other uh, very interesting nationalities. In our master's program, there's from many different countries in Europe, uh, people, even uh, people from outside of Europe, from Japan, from Egypt. Um, and that really spoke to me and I really enjoyed it. Well, you've hit on something there that's very important. I'm sure you've come across it as well, Ambassador, uh, the the use of languages and the importance of languages. Very important, yes. When I joined the Foreign Service uh, almost 40 years ago, the French, uh, was the French was the language of diplomacy. It was the first language required to become a diplomat. And then English, German, the rest. Now it's English, of course, since many years. But still in the European Union, for example, the working languages are uh, French and English. Uh, so it's very, very important. And German, I think. German is... Uh, Officially, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we don't insist as much on our language as France, for example. So I think people tend to forget that there's also German. Oh, it's I think... It's not much use, but uh, <laughs> well, there's always the Spanish-Italian uh, delegate saying, what about us? What about the Latin languages? Of course. <laughs> so give us some uh, tips then. I mean, you started off the conversation by saying, you know, one of the students said, you know, is diplomacy still alive? Does it still matter? What does this diplomacy mean to you and how can we all use it in our lives, even if we're not diplomats? We are all diplomats in a way uh, because we're all negotiators. Uh, when we wake up in the morning, we start dealing with decisions that we have to take and mediation that we have to make with other people. Or dogs or cats uh, or children. Uh, oh, exactly. <laughs> with your daily life. Um, a diplomat is someone who uh, negotiates and mediates uh, on behalf of his own government. So it's a dif- but it's not much different from uh, someone who goes to the market to sell his products or uh, a lawyer who has to uh, deal with uh, his client's needs. Um, but there's a different technique. So you have to know the technique. So in order to become a professional diplomat, you have to learn uh, the, the, the technique of uh, becoming it. Uh, so we have uh, diplomatic academies, for example, teaching uh, diplomats. Even after they join the foreign service, we keep on constantly uh, attending courses at universities and research centers. Uh, another important thing uh, for being a, a diplomat is uh, being able to uh, adapt constantly to the, as we discussed, to the different environments. So if you are a successful diplomat, you cannot be someone who um, doesn't want to, uh, you know, uh, share experiences and be open to other experiences. Yeah, I want you to give us some of the tips then. I know uh, we haven't got time in this uh, 30 minutes to go to Diplomatic Academy, but just give us some of the the tips that have really served you through your life very well. On the uh, well, um, being open to other cultures and not having prejudices, because this is, uh, if you have a prejudged uh, idea about something, uh, usually it's wrong. Uh, that's why diplomats are always sent uh, in principle for several years to a country, like usually four years, because the first year you are there to learn. I was lucky to come to Luxembourg, a country very friendly, very welcoming, uh, but it was at the time of the COVID, so no, not many activities were going on. And uh, I'm glad that uh, we could cross paths with uh, the University of Luxembourg launching this beautiful uh, event. And also another important thing that we have discussed also in the, in, the, in, the, in the course and we will discuss in the lab is technology. Uh, diplomacy, like many other uh, human activities, is very much linked to technology. Uh, it started with writing and then uh, uh, radio, uh, telegrams, uh, now the social media. Uh, how is technology affecting uh, the future of diplomacy? That's why one of the future activities we want to uh, launch in the near future with the lab is the impact of artificial intelligence and uh, new technologies on geopolitics. It's a big subject. People like Eric Kissinger written, recently wrote uh, thick books about this subject because they believe is the future of not only diplomacy, but humanity. Yeah, well, we have quite a few uh, episodes on ChatGPT and AI, another one coming up quite soon. Are you worried about that? I suppose we all view immense technologies such as AI with some trepidation, but also 
absolute step change in our lives. How do you go about teaching that? <laughs> well, for the moment, by providing students with warnings, I think the kind of complex essays that we have in a lot of our courses, um, that chat uh, GPT doesn't really provide very good answers to that. So there are limits to um, <laughs> to your ability to use this. But what it does very well is simple standard text, so like motivation letters, where we definitely see this. We have, you know, the applications for the new semester, and I know that half of my motivation letters are already partially chatbotted, I would say. So you can really see it. But then also, if you don't use it very well, um, it's very visible that you copy-pasted text written by another person or entity into your motivation letter or into your essay and then there's really a break in the style. Wow, that's extraordinary. I mean, I'm so old school that it didn't even cross my mind that somebody would use it for a motivation letter, which is such a personal voice of yourself. And it doesn't do it well. It does the language well. So it sounds very elegant. It gets the main points, but of course, it doesn't really build in your personal experience or you would have to feed it. It can't. A lot of information. If you want to produce a good motivation letter with a chatbot, you really have to work with a chatbot and provide additional information. So then you you still have to put a lot of effort in. If you just go there and say, write, write a motivation letter, um, then, uh, yeah, the outcome won't be good. You didn't do that, did you, Bram? The chat GPT wasn't there <laughs> when I uh, applied to the Masters. <laughs> no, I, no, I know it's come along very quickly, which is part of the issue. Now, coming back to you, Annalena, another thing that you work on, which fascinates me, is, and it's very relevant to Luxembourg, is um, you work in Luxembourgish politics as part of the C2ESS project, Challenges to European Small States. And here we are in a small European state. What's that about? Yes, we we had a consortium of nine different small states, including states that are much smaller than Luxembourg, like Liechtenstein and uh, Andorra and uh, San Marino even, uh, so that are a tenth of the population of Luxembourg or even less. And uh, we looked at sort of common challenges, for example, for the labor market, uh, migration, um, how democracy is organized, uh, these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, I want more information. It sounds actually fascinating. How does Luxembourg stand within all of this? I think um, so. So um, the the idea was not so much to rank it, but to sort of compare the challenges and the different approaches. So, for example, Liechtenstein is very similar to Luxembourg in terms of needing a lot of labor, um, having but e- even less space than Luxembourg because Liechtenstein is a tiny country with four um, towns actually only. <laughs> so, for example, there that they that labor is no longer allowed to move to Liechtenstein; they have to commute from the surrounding countries. So, Luxembourg is still doing relatively well despite the uh, housing crisis, and I don't want to. Inspire by the government here. I'm not saying keep the foreigners out. I was one uh, at some point. So, yeah. um, but so we compare these different challenges and how we handle it and the limits um, to to what we can do as a small state. And Bram, as a student, mm-hmm. uh, is there anything else on this course that you would like to add that's not present, given that you have the professor in the room? <laughs> About um, her course or just the, yeah, the, the course uh, in general? The course in general. Yeah, I I think the the mastering European governance is a as the professor also mentioned, a very interesting combination of a basis of political science, which I also did in my bachelor's, and then a lot of added value from uh, from experts such as Ambassador Bracioli and uh, other people in the field. Um, and I think it is very interesting um, that they've been able to create this combination. Um, and also, like for my bachelor's, I did political science, but many of my colleagues did not. Um, and it's very interesting to have those different background, that interdisciplinary approach to what you're doing because from a political science background some of the things I was doing just came naturally I didn't even think about them anymore but then people from other backgrounds ask questions about why 
do we do that? Like, why would you want to do that? And that really forces you to think about what you are doing academically. And I think that is uh, very worthwhile uh, in this master program. Well, we'll come back on that and more besides after this very short break. The Lisa Burke Show. Well, I'm going to turn to some more plans that you have for the future. You mentioned, Annalena, the feminist foreign policy, um, but also within the Diplomacy Lab, you're going to look at indigenous diplomacy. I mean, the title is Indigenous Diplomacy as a Critical Asset for the Achievement of an Effective Sustainable Development. Would you like to pick up on that? That's quite a title, isn't it? It's a long one. <laughs> Very academic. Yes. Well, yes, indeed. Well, um, indigenous people um, amount to uh, one tenth of the world population. We don't uh, realize that very often, and this is extremely important. Also, because they live in very sensitive areas, which are very uh, significant also for sustainable development, because they know what sustainable development is before the concept of sustainable development was created. Take Amazonia, for example. Take uh, the medicine that we learn from them. So uh, indigenous diplomacy, which is the form of what they can do at the international level in order to advance this kind of uh, awareness, is extremely important. So we would like to organize an event uh, calling uh, um, to Luxembourg some uh, leaders uh, from Brazil, notably, but also some indigenous people from uh, Europe. We have some indigenous people living in Finland, for example, the Sami population. So we are trying to uh, invite uh, some uh, members of the parliament of Finland and some members of the foreign service of Finland that are actually coming from uh, uh, indigenous people. I think it's fascinating because it's a voice uh, for a huge percentage of the population, as you've mentioned, about a third, I think you just mm -hmm. said, uh, that doesn't stand on that diplomatic stage so often. So very important to kind of to bring this voice in, mm, part of the global landscape. Indeed, of course. So you can also see that from the angles of minorities, but this goes a little bit beyond and uh, it looks very much into the future. So we have to go back to the past and see what their wisdom is mm -hmm. in order to look also what how we treat nature, for example, and environment, which yeah. is our future. Of course. Uh, you also have, you mentioned AI, but you have space diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, I would actually, like, if that's okay, let Bram speak about the events because yes. they are actually oh. very, very active in organizing them right now oh, to the yes. point where I offered to write to some people I know and they were like, no, we want to do it ourselves. Yeah. Ooh. Yes. So it's student-led. Yes, it's certainly. Uh, and uh, so we have, I think, eight people now in the Young Research Committee uh, and I chair them. Um, but yeah, it's a student-led. Uh, we, of course, engage with uh, Ambassador Brasioli and Professor Hugenauer uh, with ideas um, and things we have. So you come up with the topic? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, so, before, uh, for example, the uh, the feminist foreign policy that was uh, one of the people from our uh, the committee. Uh, she also wrote for the publication that we uh, launched during the launch event uh, on feminist foreign policy. Um, and in that sense, we thought about it and we we're like, well, it's very interesting. A lot of countries are now looking at that. So, but what does it mean? So. Let's do an event on that. And then about space diplomacy, you have someone else uh, in the group that's very interested in uh, space and in diplomacy, uh, also in other contexts. So she brought it up um, and we discussed it uh, with the ambassador. And we're like, well, yeah, that is very interesting. And there's not a lot of things that are going on about that. So let's organize something about how you can um, use diplomacy in the context of space or how space can be used in the context of diplomacy and 
how those things um, combine together because it's not the first thing you think of. When you think of diplomacy, you don't immediately think of space. And when you think of space, you don't immediately think of diplomacy. But there's still a very important link between there. Well, I think space is coming closer to Earth, if I may say it that way, and it's becoming part of our environment and we need to tackle that in a sustainable way as well. You mentioned two she's there. Yes. <laughs> um, and it made me think of all of the places that you've lived, Ambassador. Is it possible for a woman to be an ambassador in any country in the world? Uh, nowadays, I would say that most countries, yes. Uh, I remember vividly, uh, for example, that Pakistan had, uh, for country where I served first, had uh, ladies being ambassadors before ladies could join the foreign service in Italy in 67. So imagine. So uh, we have also to look at that. They were political appointees, but they were sent from, by their governments to represent their country abroad. Uh, so it is possible, but you have to be vigilant about that and you have to make sure that uh, they have equal opportunities. That's why we want to talk about feminist uh, foreign policy. And the interesting concept that came from the students always about feminist foreign policy, I'm looking at Bram to uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's not only the issue of representation of women in the foreign services, because that's one aspect, how many women ambassadors we have compared to men ambassadors, but also how to promote a feminist foreign policy. For example, now we are living in a period of crisis and our societies are confronted with realism. Uh, we have to come to deal with countries that we would not, not normally deal with in such an uh, intense way because we need our energy, we need our oil, we need our gas. Uh, and we've been pushing very much before on uh, feminist uh, rights, uh, women's rights. Are we going to do the same in the future uh, or are we going to sacrifice that on the altar of uh, our well-being? Uh, that's a very important issue. It has to do with human rights in general, but uh, probably the world would be better if we had more women in uh, positions of command and uh, we're very much convinced of that. Oh, nicely put. Well, I won't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, one of the hard things I think about being an investor, I imagine, it's the same with uh, some journalists, actually. You have to, as you said, jump into a country, mm -hmm. feel the lie of the land without prejudice for about a year or so, and then extract yourself and the roots that you've made, those tender roots after about four years. Mm -hmm. How do you cope with that? Because you make friends, you make deep connections in a very strong and, and, and passionate way for the time you're there. And then you have to leave and move on. That's hard. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, uh, this is where technology helps you because I can see the difference from my previous post at the beginning where there was no internet, no email and so on. 40 years ago and now so you can easily keep in touch uh, with uh, uh, WhatsApp, uh, LinkedIn, uh, mobile phones. So makes uh, things much, much closer and uh, it's much easier. And uh, good, good, some good friends uh, always stay good friends. I always notice in my foreign service, um, uh, at the end of a term in a country, I always try to uh, make a list of the most significant people that I've met, uh, 5, 10, 20 uh, in Luxembourg, there are many. And I always try to keep in contact with them. Before it was with letters and postcards, now it's much easier, of course. Yeah, although letters and postcards are also so lovely. Yes. They really, really are. Well, um, how would you like students to approach you without using ChatGPT if they wanted to get onto your master's course? What would be the best way? Well, there is the official online application system of the University of Luxembourg, <laughs> which is mandatory to use, unfortunately. Um, but it also works very well. But my advice would be to students that um, 
yes, so we, a, a good motivation letter is important um, because, of course, you do have some students who may have excellent grades and who stand out. But um, for many, many students who are sort of in the middle of the field, it really matters whether you can write a passionate motivation letter, whether you can show that you've looked at our website. Uh, we sometimes get motivation letters where people tell us they want to study the influence of the Catholic Church on uh, European institutions, and we don't teach that. So, you know, if you, if you show that you really don't know what we are teaching, that's not a good idea. So, you know, explain to us who you are, where you come from, what you've done, where your interest in, in European institutions come from, where you want to go with life and show us that you've really looked at what we do. And for you, Bram, did you visit Luxembourg and the university before you applied? Yes, there was an open day uh, which I visited, but that was uh, the first time I was in Luxembourg uh, in my whole life, which was a very interesting experience. Um, but yeah, of course, I visited. I went to the open day. I um, there was also a Q and A session um, with the the people from the the course that I um, attempted to join, uh, and ultimately it worked. But there were some technological technological issues. Um, but yeah. I, of course, I read the website, I went to the open day, I looked it all up. Um, because also, like, just from a personal perspective, you want to know that you want to do it. It's a pretty big decision to come and move here and study here for two years. And I think for everyone, it's a very good idea to look up as much as possible and see if it would really be a good fit for you. And Ambassador, turning to you finally, uh, before we move on to Lex, where is the best place you've lived? Uh, that's a question you never ask a diplomat. I know, I knew, I knew in my head. I already had. Uh, everywhere is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> someone said the next one. Uh, no, I would say Luxembourg. I'm very, I'm very happy in Luxembourg, and I'll tell you why. Because Luxembourg is a extremely interesting country, especially coming from uh, another country which is a founding member of NATO, of the European Union. Because here. And let me uh, say, uh, why you ask why a lab, a diplomacy lab? Yes, I did. Because ask. I have the impression that in this country, which is a very solid and stable country, you also like to um, experiment and looking at the future with new formulas. So it's very challenging. And you can see, for example, what Europe can be for the better in the future if we apply something that is going on in Luxembourg. And what I like also about Luxembourg is that um, is, uh, everybody is quite accessible and very friendly. Yeah, I think we're we're all very friendly. You're right. Uh, uh, the word lab it reminds me a lot of people think about Luxembourg and its population as a kind of a, a pilot plant, a testing centre. Mm -hmm. Sasha, do you have any questions? I saw you making a couple of notes there. Well, I'm completely fascinated what it's like, sort of on a daily basis, to be an ambassador in such a small country like Luxembourg. Mm, it's very easy because you meet everybody very easily. Uh, you walk down the street uh, and coming from a country like Italy vegan uh, you go and um, you stand in a coffee or on a terrace and you see the Prime Minister passing by and welcoming you and uh, taking coffee with you so being a diplomat is very very uh, easy here uh, as uh, everybody's really accessible and, and presumably you don't get called in to sort of answer for your country's <laughs> action in the same way as maybe in other countries no 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 absolutely <laughs> Italy is a very nice country everybody loves yes. Italy nowadays the weather is not so friendly in Italy as it is here <laughs> at the moment but at the moment yeah. yes yeah that's true and we hope We're everything and, uh, that's not a good situation uh, Ambassador Annalena Blam congratulations on what you've set up at the university and good luck with your future maybe you'll be here in a few years time as a diplomat for, for who knows where you have <laughs> a, a wonderful future ahead of you and we'll be back uh, just after this short break The Lisa Burke Show 
And now it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Lex Schaul, who is a public health professional since uh, 2022, involved in several cancer prevention projects, including this one, which is about tobacco control, one that's very close to my heart because I really want this to work. I wish it could be cut out because I've just seen too much tragedy around smoking. Yeah. Lex, Lex, yeah. tell us all about it. <laughs> yes, hello. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Um, Yes, smoking is still a big problem in Luxembourg. Um, we last week we we published the new statistics of 2022, and um, last year 28% percent um, of Luxembourgish residents smoked, which is a very high number. Yeah. Comparing to to other European countries. What is the other? What is the European average? In fact, I don't know. I think it's around 20%. percent. Right. So we're, um, we're significantly still far from higher. The goal, but yeah. Um, yeah. So we yeah, we have very high numbers, um, with ninety nineteen percent of daily smokers, which is also very concerning um, mm -hmm, because of the cost on their health and our health service. And I know that the Cancer Foundation is launching the project Generation Sans Tabac by twenty forty. Yes. Yes, uh, like many other European countries, um, we we launched the, this project Generation Sans Tabac in March this year. Um, with the with the ambition to um, to give the uh, today's children a right to grow up in a in a tobacco free, smoke free environment, and to be a first generation um, of adults in 2040 that that lives in that smoke free uh, environment. And what do you think uh, could help that? What could be put in place to make that happen, policy wise? Um, there could be several. There could. Uh, several measures. Um, one important factor is the price of tobacco. Um, comparing to other neighbor countries, we still have uh, very low prices on, on tobacco products. So, um, and, and studies show that um, raising significantly the, the prices of, of tobacco products is a very important measure and a very effective measure. And why does the government not do that? I'm turning to all of the uh, <laughs> the <laughs> diplomats in the room as well. <laughs> why why does that not happen? Very good question, um, because there are a lot of people uh, involved in the tobacco industry um, and, and, and Luxembourg still gets a lot of money through these tobacco products. So um, this is one of the main factors. But um, it also has to pay a lot for the health requirements as a result of that. That's true. Um, when you look at all the, the, the mortality and, and um, illnesses um, or that is caused by, by, by uh, tobacco, that there's a really big, um, big cost on, on, on health uh, mm -hmm. from tobacco. Sasha, I just had a quick question. Do you not think that the numbers could be skewed because of everybody coming into Luxembourg to buy cigarettes? Yep. Yes. So maybe... It, it, You know, is it people in the country actually smoking that much, or is it the fact that people are coming in buying cigarettes and um, in from the, Germany? The so. Statistics are from Luxembourgish residents, so ah, okay. we can say that uh, 28% of Luxembourgish people smoke. But there's uh, because of the price, there's a lot of of people from neighboring countries to, that come to to Luxembourg to buy tobacco products, and there we don't have the the statistic. We we know the numbers of of tobacco sold, but not. The more statistics because it doesn't concern us anymore because they smoke in their country and not in, in Luxembourg. Yeah. So given that you're now a health professional and working with the Cancer Foundation, uh, talk us through um, that very clear link between tobacco and cancer and how it impacts our bodies. Um, actually, 
tobacco affects nearly every organ of our of our body so uh, and, and ca can cause several cancers um, it's um, um, lung cancers um, but also um, other other um, cardiovascular diseases um, other cancers so it's it's really a, a poison for our body because it, it really affects every single part of of, of the body and of course, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be hard on anybody who smokes. I know from uh, very, very close uh, friends and family, it's very hard for some people to give up, incredibly hard. Have you got any tricks for people to give up? Anybody in the room, any tricks for people to give up? Uh, I wish I had the, the, the magic formula to, 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 to give to people to stop smoking. It's, it's quite uh, complicated because when you smoke, you... you you also, uh, because of the nic nicotine, you you have an, a physical and a psychological addiction, which is very uh, nicotine is very highly ad addictive. So and and that's very very difficult for people to 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 stop that addiction. Um, there there are several uh, ways. Um, some people can stop from from. They can stop immediately. Other other people need professional help, and so that's very important that we, we create them a, a good help for people uh, with professionals with uh, with the f uh, formation uh, in in on, on tobacco um, cessation and yes. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite quite complex and quite uh, difficult. And if you had a magic wand and could help things in Luxembourg change, you've mentioned the price point. Yeah. You need that to be a point of pain for people. Yeah. That would be the first thing you think that would be the most significant change to help people stop. Yeah, and 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 the second most, or it's uh, as uh, also important is um, prevent smoking among uh, young young people. So if you don't start smoking, um, you have good chances to to not be a chronic smoker. But if you start, there are high chances of, of smoking for for several years or for a lifetime even. And do you happen to know the links between parents smoking around their children and the link that they then smoke? As yeah. Um, children with parents who smoke often tend to, to smoke too. That's... Uh, so it's a strong link as well. So another reason why parents should give up. Bram, I'm going to throw you into the deep end here because you're a future diplomat in the making and who knows, maybe a politician one day. What would you do to make things better? Um, well, of course, um, I like I am biased in that I'm from the Netherlands and we are pretty strict in our anti-tobacco measures. Um, of course, raising the price is, I think, a very good idea because even from the Netherlands, people go to Luxembourg, buy a whole lot of tobacco and then sell it to all their friends. Because if you do it in on a large enough scale, it's worth the the, 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 the gasoline because you know, just fill up your tank here uh, relatively cheap. Um, so raising the price would be a very good idea. Um, I think uh, also, yeah, um, limiting the possibility of smoking in public areas. So, of course, inside, but also um, in the Netherlands, we've banned smoking on terraces uh, outside. And, um, of course, it's better to smoke outside than inside also for pe other people. But I think limiting places where you can just casually start smoking makes it so much harder because then you have to get out of what you're doing and go somewhere else, get out of your social group and then start smoking and then come back. And I think that raises the barrier to start smoking. 
You've trained him well, haven't you? He's got some good answers here, Annalena. I can see the public speaking. This diplomacy lab is working. Right? <laughs> But I also have the impression that we actually um, usually have relatively few smokers among our students. Of course, I don't monitor what they do privately, but just from events and how people act at events and how many people leave to, to smoke, I would say that... Um, We are probably below average, actually, <laughs> in yeah. terms of smokers. That, that's, no, I was more impressed by the public speaking and the, the kind of like yeah. brilliant diplomatic oh, answer yeah. straight out of his mouth. <laughs> it's good. Thank you. <laughs> very, very good. And Ambassador, you've probably seen all sorts in your 40 years. And uh, I mean, again, I mean, not just smoking here, but how can you affect change through the diplomatic route? How can you make change that's happen? To the legislator to introduce uh, norms and regulations is very important. I was a smoker and then I quit around 10 years ago. And, Congratulations. Uh, yes. And that was quite easy because I stopped overnight uh, simply after a visit to a doctor who told me, you know, your health is quite all right, but to be better, uh, I would rather do. It depends on your motivation, as, uh, as they said very much. And uh, one encouraging thing is that you can be helped. It was not needed in my case, but you can have you can get some psychological help. And another good thing is that um, uh, it, you get addicted, and uh, it get uh, your body get uh, gets poison in it, and you get addiction to that poison because it gives you pleasure. But um, this is one of the few things in life, like alcohol uh, or food. Uh, the good news is that after around 21 days, there is a cycle in your body. Uh, if you quit doing something or taking some substances after almost one month your body doesn't need them anymore it's like sugar in the coffee if you try to stop that you will notice that at the beginning is hard but then it becomes natural and then you don't want sugar in your coffee anymore that's a very good so tip. but as a diplomat i would say legislation this is very important this is very important and i'm sure you've seen it across the world as well how it's changed Sasha, you've got three young well yeah young adults they are now in fact so have they I, i'm sure they're not i know one of your on the smoking well no i know that I, i assume they're not smokers one of them is a nutritionist in <laughs> fact <laughs> no they don't actually they they've they're not interested but, but they're i friendship always groups. think that yes i mean amongst their friends a lot of people smoke and of course what i notice is that a lot of young kids And I don't know that that seems to have really taken on. And I, I you know, I see this that they, they kind of feel it's the healthy alternative if your thing smells of watermelon rather than tobacco. And I mean, I was also a smoker. So, um, but I sort of feel that I, I don't know, in my bones, I kind of feel that they're, they're kidding themselves. It's going to be just as bad at one point they'll find out Lex yes. tell yes. us about vaping um, um, vape, vaping project, um, products and e-cigarettes are very popular at the moment um, especially among uh, young young people um, it's it's because of the, 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 the tons of flavors you have in, in, in the, the e-cigarettes and it, it's also very available on every gas station you, you get these these e-cigarettes or, or even the, the single use um, puffs I don't know if you, how to say it in English uh, it's puff in in here we call it puff that's a single use um, electronic cigarette that that you can use for 300 um, puffs and then you throw it away and that's very popular among among young people because of, of that uh, the, the the flavors they have you can nearly have every flavor in in, in, in that product but what about the health effects um, Uh, hopefully there's no tobacco in these products, that's good, but there's still nicotine. And especially for young people, nicotine can be a poison. If they if they take too much nicotine, it can be a poison. And, and that's the danger of the products. And it opens the door to other tobacco, pro to the real tobacco products um, 
so it's quite a good strategy of the tobacco industry to to launch these kind of new pro, uh, products very very interesting for uh, for young people and another problem are those pouches those nicotine pouches mm. that uh, young people uh, just eat as mm. yeah. <laughs> Just dreadful things, dreadful things. Well, we, but I think that smoking here in Luxembourg is still completely tolerated. I mean, my impression, mm. having come from the UK, mm. um, is just that people are very relaxed about it, yeah. which which is kind of nice. You know, it is individual mm. choice and freedom. But that, yeah, the impression I get is that it's totally acceptable to smoke here. Yeah, and when I go back to the UK or Ireland, but particularly the UK, even even like huge city like London, People think it's quite old-fashioned now if people smoke. They they mm. kind of think people smoke still. It's like yes. really why why would somebody do that? And uh, I think in America it's even more extreme. In fact, so mm. let's hope that comes to pass here in Luxembourg and that we can um, uh, put it to the back so that people can live healthier lives. And I'm sure the government will find another way to make money. <laughs> they generally do. Well, to all of my guests, I would like some final thoughts uh, to send us on into summer. Let's hope the flooding stops in Italy, of course. Well, it seems that it's stopping now. Uh, we are going to have drought, uh, oh. so I don't know. We are going through extremes. The weather yeah. is uh, really yeah. changing. Yeah. And that's a big sign that uh, those who are sending us uh, alarm signs uh, about uh, environment and so on, they're absolutely right. And how many more postings do you have? How many? How long have we got you here in Luxembourg before you, you fly off to the next I one? I hope forever. I would say at least uh, one year, hopefully. One more year. Yeah, OK, but we're close. We're not too far away no, from Italy. No, so, yes. and, and do you know where you might go next? Well, probably back to Rome. Probably but back to the headquarters. That's also a very lovely place to be based. So <laughs> a wonderful gelato there. Uh, any final words to fellow students, Bram, on behalf of the diplomacy lab that you and your cohort have developed? Yeah, I think it is uh, very important uh, for students to uh, engage in extracurricular activities like this. I think it really broadens your horizons and gives you great opportunities like the one I am currently engaging in. Uh, if you are just doing your courses, of course, that's also very important. Um, I wouldn't want to say to the professor that the students should focus less on the courses. Um, but these extracurricular activities can really broaden your horizons and bring you to places where you otherwise would never be. And I must say, you look incredibly dapper this morning. Thank very, you. very smart nah. indeed. Uh, uh, Lex, uh, give us some final motivation so that we can transform this smoking trend in Luxembourg. Um, um, I would say that I hope that everyone joins our, our project um, of the to tobacco-free generation because it's there. It's good for for every one of us uh, to have a, to live in a tobacco and smoke-free uh, environment um, and 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 give our children the the, the right to denormalize tobacco and to to live in in a. I agree. In, in a, Tobacco-free world. <laughs> tobacco world is a marvelous one. And Elena, the final word to you and Sasha. Yes, so it was really great fun for us to start this project, the Diplomacy Lab. And um, I think we are immensely proud uh, what our students are doing with it. Uh, I think we didn't expect them to become that involved in this project, but so that's really impressive. And... Um, yeah, and so I'm, I'm really also looking forward to see what the new students who will arrive in September will do with this project, how they'll integrate into it and what ideas they'll bring um, to the table, sorry, in terms of uh, future projects.
projects. Well, maybe some of these students who may have used ChatGPT for their motivational letters can write a paper on AI. And how exactly. It can... <laughs> Is ChatGPT a better diplomat? Uh, oh, well, oh, <laughs> what happens when you have two chatbots um, negotiating mm. an agreement? <laughs> have you tried this? We should. <laughs> Sasha, have you any final words for our guests or questions for them? Um, oh, I was just wondering what it was like to be a student here, because uh, one of the other big things we're always talking about is housing, housing, housing and the price of living in Luxembourg. So as a student, what's your experience apart from the course? Um, well, regarding housing, it almost bankrupted me. Um, <laughs> it, it really did. Uh, like, I know it was expensive and I... I knew there was little uh, possibility to get things, um, but it was worse than I expected. So the first few months I was in a place that I really could not afford, uh, at least not for any longer than six months. So luckily after that, I got a different place. But yeah, it, it is something that you notice here, um, even in the Netherlands, where also places aren't cheap. We don't have that much land. We have a lot of people, but here it really is on the next level. And of course, the problem or at least a part of the problem here is that the university is still very young and they're still building a lot of things. So in 10 years, there will probably be enough places to host the university. But currently, it is difficult to host all of the students. Um, and yeah, that that was a difficult experience for me. But now I enjoy it here uh, when I'm not going bankrupt. Oh, gosh. Oh, dear. Well, uh, on that lovely, jolly note, which uh, brings us back to one of our circular conversations here, housing, uh, I, I, I want you to just put that to the back of your minds and have a wonderful sunny weekend. And just remember the story Sasha brought us about all of the lovely lakes and open waters. And if the sunshine continues, we wish you a fabulous weekend ahead. RTL Original Podcast.